Our second reading is from the book of Exodus. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or daughter your male servant or your female servant, your live or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Okay, so don't raise your hand, but how many of you know all Ten Commandments in order? Don't raise your hand. A couple generations ago, a couple generations ago, everyone did. Now, of course, as author Greg Forrester noted once, a hundred years ago, 
everyone thought they were a Christian because they went to church and they lived pretty much the same way everyone else did. It was spiritually vacuous, and it's not necessarily a good thing. And yet maybe there is a benefit to learning the Ten Commandments. And as I've found, it's actually much easier if you can simplify them, if you were going to try to memorize them. And this is what we're looking at the next couple weeks. So let me give you my simplified version. It's just one word for each command. God, idols, name, Sabbath. Like, And you get it, right? No other gods. Don't make idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And then it goes on parents, honor them. Murder, don't. Adultery, also don't. Steal, lie, don't. And covet, don't. Some of you find easier ones when it's more memorable. So there's also, as you can find online, the hillbilly and texting Ten Commandments. (laughs) Honor your ma and pa. Quit your foul mouthin'. No killin', except for critters. The texting ones, for those of you who are over- 40 and struggle with this, no one before me, seriously. No OMGs. POS means parent over shoulder. Parent over shoulder is okay. Your mom and dad are cool. Doesn't matter. Just pick one that's going to stick in your head. Because over the next 10 weeks, this is what we're looking at. And while these are funny, the way the Ten Commandments were received was anything but funny. It was very serious. It was incredibly grave. And it was actually a massive covenantal ceremony. Let me explain. So we get in Exodus chapter 20, the very start here, and it goes like this in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the setting is right there. This is just after Israel. The people of Israel had been delivered. The Hebrew peoples have spent hundreds of years as slaves in Egypt. And the Lord God has delivered them out of slavery, miraculously bringing them out. They have been redeemed, set free. And now he says, you are my people and I will be your God. What's happening here is very relational. It may not seem that way because of the way you read the rest of it, but a couple things jump out to us in this sense. He identifies himself, the Lord identifies himself as the Lord. And I, that's all caps there because it's a transliteration of the Hebrew Yahweh, the unique name of God, where God identifies himself and says, I am Yahweh, your God. There's a relationship that's being established there. And it's established with a covenant. That's what the Ten Commandments begin. A covenant, which is basically a treaty or a contract. And if you think about it, any relationship you've ever been a part of has some element of a contractual agreement to it. Sometimes it can be formalized, like in the merger between two two companies. It's a formalized relationship. Some relationships have covenantal nature to them, but all the implications are assumed, right? So like in a marriage, there's actually a contract. There's a a binding promises that are made before God and before the state. But when you have children, there's no contract. Everything is assumed. You as a parent have children, and you 
It's, it's implied that you promise to protect them, to provide for them, to train them, to raise them up, to set them free. And they, they promise to keep you up at night as they're crying as babies, eventually arguing with you at every point, and then later on just taking the car on Friday nights. That's what they do. It's an agreement. Everyone understands how it works. Even though there's no written contract, all relationships have some form of agreement, and some are formalized. That's what God is doing here as he lays out the commands and the rest of the covenantal law. He is formalizing the relationship. But notice what precedes the Ten Commandments. We have it right here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is identifying himself as their redeemer. And think about where this comes. God chooses and saves Israel before he gives them the commands. It's not, here's the commands, do them, and then I will save you. He chooses them before they are worthy, before they've done anything, and then says, okay, I am your redeemer, now follow me. This is the gospel already told in the midst of the Ten Commandments. I have redeemed you, therefore worship me. Not if you worship me, then maybe I'll redeem you. So hold that in for all the weeks upcoming. Okay, so how do we understand all of the Ten Commandments? Well, they break down in two categories, relating to God and relating to one another. And they're really like a social contract with God brought into the middle of it. It gives up values and what's good and how to live life. The Anglican Catechism talks about the Ten Commandments in a couple of fashions, that they are um, a light revealing the nature of God, that they are a teacher that helps to train us in the way we should walk. They are a mirror reflecting how sinful we are, and ultimately they are a guide leading us to Jesus because we see he is the only way out of this. And what I've found as I've looked at the Ten Commandments and as you read across all of the Bible is that often we fall short when we simply identify one of the words and associate just what we hear in that. So example is do not murder, right? That's a don't. But on top of the don'ts are do's, a heart, and God. The don't is the external actions. Don't go around murdering people. But implied in the don't murder is a do. Do love. Do protect life. Do forgive. The flip side of every command. And then, of course, Jesus takes it internal. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say, if you hate, if you have anger, unforgiveness, if you're unwilling to turn the other cheek. And ultimately, every command is a description of God and his nature. Do not murder is a description of God as creator, as the one who loves us so generously, who has forgiven our sins. We're simply carrying out what he has already revealed in his nature. And so we come to our first commandment, which we're looking at today. We get it in verse 3. It's really simple. You shall have no other gods before me. This command was as countercultural 
to the Hebrew people as it is to us today. We think about it today, you can't just say there's one God or one way. That's exactly how the Hebrew people would have thought themselves. Think about the culture they came from. They came from Egypt, which had a litany of gods, and they were entering the land of Canaan, which had thousands of gods and idols. There were multiple deities everywhere. That was all the Hebrew people knew in the lands that they had lived in. And God says, you shall have no other gods. This is going to be different. It's not like the other nations. It's not like every culture around you. I'm calling something different, and I expect absolute loyalty. He's claiming in this to be the sole authority of all that's good and right and true, meaning our priorities, our aims, our values, that he has ultimate say on who we are and how we live. And if you go through all of the commandments that follow off of this, basically what God is saying is, I am am the one who has sole authority on what you worship, on your time, on your family, on all your relationships, on your body, on your thoughts, on your money, on the words that come out of your mouth and the very desires of your heart. I and I alone am God of all these things. Do these Ten Commandments matter? Well, let's assume, let's assume the Ten Commandments do actually matter. Because I think nowadays it's hard. It's hard to say, like, I, I, you know, th- this is natural to us. We just walk in these things. They, these things are counter to how we think and the culture we live in. But let's assume that they're all true, that everything that is said in there is actually right. The hard part is, even as Christians... We might consent intellectually to the Ten Commandments, but if we're honest, it's not really our heart's desire. It's not really how we live. What gets in the way? Well, let's think about a couple things that affect us and affect how we live that aren't God's word. Our worldview, which we talk about a lot here, our worldview is often shaped by more things than we're aware. A worldview is a point of view. It's your values. It's how you interpret life. It's how you interpret your circumstances and how you make decisions. The Christian worldview suggests that you should believe in one true God, that we are the clay, I mean, he is the potter, and what he designs is what we become. His word, whether it's written, like these commands, or his word, incarnate Jesus Christ. Scripture and Christ reveal the life we are called to and should be shaping our worldview, defining what we value. So, is that your primary worldview shaper? And would we even know if it wasn't? You see, what I've found as I've looked at these things more often, especially over the past couple years, is that our culture influences our basic assumptions and even shapes how we approach Christianity. Think about this, right? American culture elevates personal liberty and individual happiness. It's one of the things we're going to celebrate tomorrow is liberty, but it elevates the individual in America, right? And nowadays, the primary authority in America is my feelings, my wants and my desires. There was a time centuries ago when it was maybe religion or the church or God, 
and then it was the government. And then, for the past couple hundred years, it's been science. But over the past decade, we've actually tossed that off, and the only authority left is right here. This is what decides what is good and right and true. And it's very American. And it's assumed even by Christians. It's why I'm always hesitant when a Christian says, the Spirit told me to do something. Because I think it's very easy to mix our American individuality into that and my feelings being interpreted as the Holy Spirit. When it's not also run through the Word of God and the community of faith at least, what the Spirit tells me can very often sound like what I want already. I was with uh, the college interns this week and we were talking about our culture and one of the things I asked them was, how did you decide which college to go to? What factors played in? And when it came down to it, they all basically said, well, I decided. It was what I wanted. I, I, you know, my dad, my mom, but it was really me. And I said, okay, that, that's not wrong, but just think about the implication of your assumption on how you decide which college to go to or any decisions we make. We do them very individualistically. And our assumption is probably this. That's how we're going to do our Christianity. It's how we're going to do all of our values and worldview. It's how we're going to approach life. We live in a culture that is morally relativistic, meaning no truth claim is superior or has authority over others. And so whether you are a Christian or not, you might say, oh, the Ten Commandments, they're basically pretty good. I mean, they're a good guide for us, or I think most of it's okay. But probably a lot of us fall along the lines of this uh, cartoon comic strip where one of the Hebrews goes up to Moses and says, I don't know about you, but I've only found a couple that work for me. You see, we like the Ten Commandments until we decide we don't. And what do we do when God's law, his claims, his ways disagree with either what everyone knows to be good or right or true, what everyone else is doing, or simply what I actually want? Then what do we do? The God of the Bible, the Christian God, makes this absolute claim. No other gods. The clay does not say to the potter what it will be. Worldview and the assumptions behind it are going to shape how we live this out. The other is our telos. I'm going to get all Greek on you here. Telos is a word that means end or goal, purpose and aim. Philosophers, Christian and non Aristotle, for instance, and Christianity would argue that human beings are teleological creatures. What does that mean? It means we're directional. We're aiming for something. We're goal-oriented. And what is our telos, our end? It's primarily what we want, long, or crave for the most. Our telos tends to be how we define the good life, flourishing, what we really want out of life. If we could have the life we've always dreamed of, it would be this. That's your telos. 
Now, if you're going somewhere, both the destination and your directions matter, right? It's important to have a right orientation if you're heading somewhere. Because being an inch off on a map can be miles off in real life and can ultimately end up in shipwreck. I am pulling a bunch of things from James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love, which will be the third book in our churchwide book discussion later in August. In it, he cites the story of a shipwreck off the coast of Virginia in 1914 when the Nantucket ran into the side of the Monroe, another ship. The ship captain of the Nantucket was the one arraigned, but when he was on the stand, the ship captain of the Monroe had to admit that the compass in the Monroe's boat was, well, a, about a degree, like 1% off. 1% off was all that the compass was off on the Monroe. But over the course of miles on the sea, it meant that he was so far off course that Nantucket never expected him to be there. And the ships went down and 41 sailors died. One of the things that I think I've found, and if you're honest, you'll find, is that we are steered most strongly by what we desire most. We are steered most strongly by what we want and crave the most. Think about Odysseus in the Odyssey. When he hears the siren's call, he is so desperate to drive the ship towards them. He's not thinking about the fact that that song is pulling them and pulling the ship into rocks where they'll all die. And are we really certain that our deepest wants and desires are driving us to our true port of home or are they pulling us to a siren singing on a rocky beach? Most of us who claim to be Christians think that we have a Christian worldview and a Christian telos, end goal in mind. Most of us think we want the right things. But we have to look at what influences our telos, our goal, what shapes our values? What shapes our aims? And are we even fully aware? Author David Foster Wallace tells the anecdote of two young fish swimming in the ocean. And as they're swimming along, along comes an older fish swimming the opposite direction. The older fish says to the younger ones, How's the water, boys? The two fish swim on a little further. Then one turns to the other and says, what the heck is water? Do we even know the water that we're swimming in? Because if we don't, we'll be very unaware of the things that are shaping us, the assumptions that undergird how we make decisions, how we approach life, how we view and interpret everything around us, including ourselves. What actually influences your thoughts, your actions, your desires? And are, are we fully aware? One of the things that shapes our thoughts and our desires is ritual, habit. That's another statement that, that many people have looked at, is that we are habitual creatures. 
And what we do and do consistently shapes us. It's going to shape who we are and where we are going. Desires, your wants, are not just learned intellectually, they are internalized through repetition. N.T. Wright tells the, uh, told the story of a 2006 study done in London on taxicab drivers. Now, if you've never been in London and you're not really familiar, taxicab drivers in London have to memorize the entire map. They have to know exactly where everything is and all the roads and the ways that they go. London is not like New York on a grid system or even DC that has some version of, of order to it. It is a complete mess, much like Boston, but on a bigger scale. And a taxicab driver has to master the entire map. And what they found is taxicab drivers that have not only mastered the entire map, but have also driven it for years and years, they have a more developed area of their brain that is able to remember and process where they're going. They compared them to bus drivers that simply ran the same route, and they said, no, look, the gray matter area in this certain part of the hippocampus for the brain is incredibly larger in these people who have been driving taxicabs in London for years. Because not only the intellect, but their repetitive driving of all these streets has woven a map that has created a whole system of brain thought that's shaped their physiology. Their very bodies are different than the rest of us. What we learn by repeating consistently will shape us. It may even shape our brains, and it certainly is going to shape our hearts. Think about it another way. If, uh, if you've been driving for decades, you do it intuitively. When you try to teach a teenage driver how to drive, you know what you have to do? You actually have to remember how to drive again. <laughs> okay, so the brake is on the left, the gas is on the right, turn signals, mirrors. Wait, wait, as you're coming to the stop, look around. All these things that you've been doing intuitively for years, now all of a sudden you have to explain it. And a teenage driver, their brains are racing. When they're first doing it, they're trying to remember which one is the gas and which one's the brake. Did I check my mirrors? Do I have enough gas? Am I driving too fast? Did I look to my left or right? Am I swerving into that lane? They're thinking, 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 because these things are not intuitive to them. But how many of you, just in the past week, have gone from work to home or home to the grocery store and had no idea how you got there? And I don't just mean the aging. I don't remember how I got there. You stop at stop signs, you change lanes, you keep your speed up, you, you turn signal just intuitively because you've done it for so long, it's become a part of who you are. Is it possible that the rituals and habits and liturgies, if you would, of our culture and our daily life affect our wants, our desires, and who we are? What we do and what everyone does affects us. It was about 16 years ago that I started drinking coffee. Before that, I liked the smell of it, but not the taste. It was way too bitter. But somehow in the midst of studying and a new baby and sleepless nights, I needed the coffee. Years later, the habit was formed and I'm not just talking about the caffeine addiction that I have. I'm talking about the habit of 
the taste and scent of something that used to be so bitter I didn't want to go near it. But I formed a hunger and a craving for coffee that's built around all the things that shaped me as I was drinking coffee. It was early in the morning. Either fire in the fireplace or the sun's rising. I'm reading the newspaper or I'm in my devotions. And all these memories and thoughts are shaped around that cup of coffee so that years later, I hunger for coffee and not just in the morning. So think about anything that we do on a habitual basis. How might it be shaping our hungers and our drives? If our free time is spent with pornography or with prayer, how is it going to shape the desires of our heart differently? James K.A. Smith, in his book, puts it this way. All sorts of things we do are doing something to us. Our loves and longings are steered wrong, not because we've been hoodwinked by bad ideas. In other words, we might know what's right, but because we've been immersed in the wrong liturgies, the wrong practices, and not realized it. As a result, we absorb a different story about the purpose of human, of being human, and the norms for flourishing. We start to live toward a rival understanding of the good life instead of God's. Our wants and desires are like a garden that is being cultivated by something. Who or what is cultivating the garden of your heart? Is it the words of God or culture or even my sinful self? What rituals and habits are a part of who I am shaping my view of God and his view of the world around me? You need the spirit for your heart to be renewed and come alive, but even the spirit-renewed heart needs to be cultivated so that we will want what God wants. Because I've found in my own heart that my wants are often deceived and I rarely live fully according to God's law. And in fact, even though over the next nine weeks, besides this week, we're going to be aiming at God's law, his Ten Commandments, and how they have implications on our lives, what you're going to find is you're going to feel guilty because you're going to fall short. There will be aspects of God's law that you cannot live up to, even for a day. And that's true. We can't. That's actually one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments, is to remind us that we cannot be good enough. But of course, the Bible gives us the gospel as well, doesn't it? The God who gave the law also came to fulfill it. On Mount Sinai, God is speaking out of fire and smoke and tells the Israelites, do not come near or you will die. Be afraid. That fire and smoke is a theophany, a visual representation of God as judge. And the Ten Commandments are delivered in that. The law of God is given in that. And warnings of punishment are provided along with it. Don't do this. Do this. 
or you will die. And as any of us who have been honest with the Ten Commandments and all of the implications of it know, we're all guilty. We all stand condemned. Maybe you haven't murdered anybody lately, but anger, bitterness, jealousy, looking down on somebody, or simply a lack of love. It's murder. We're all guilty. And yet, the gospel tells us, as we see in John chapter 1, that that God of fear and smoke, that word became flesh. Jesus was Yahweh touchable. Yahweh that you could come near. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ obeyed the law perfectly and bore the punishment on the cross that we deserve for our law-breaking. It is by grace we have been saved. So be condemned so that you can fall upon the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. What is our telos? What is our end goal? It's heaven. The Ten Commandments are not just rules to constrain us. They are also a description of the good life and of heaven. Think about it. What's described in the Ten Commandments is basically shalom. That means wholeness and harmony. Wholeness and harmony with God, with my neighbor. If you lived out the Ten Commandments, it would be wholeness and harmony with God and your neighbor and therefore with yourself. And that's heaven. When we reject or walk away from any of God's commands, it's not just us rejecting his constraint on our life, it's rather us rejecting the chance to live in heaven now, to experience the fullness of shalom now. It is, as, to, as C.S. Lewis put it, settling for playing in mud puddles. When God, through his law and his ways, is offering us a vacation at the sea. Let's pray. God, there are so many things that shape us and cultivate us apart from you. Help us, Lord, by the mercy of your spirit and the practices of our lives to cultivate a longing for you to see the world as you see it, to have your telos in mind, to be shaped by your practices so that our hearts might be enlarged to the ways of God and his son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.